Creator God, we pause just to echo those powerful vocals, those wonderful lyrics. On this first day of the week, we set aside our attention and our focus, our plans, our worries. You alone are worthy. We place our hope and our trust in you today. Amen. Good morning, Orchard Grove. I don't need that. Thank you very much. I appreciate the effort. I've been uh, having my world collide with several of you over the last several weeks. I, in my work life, my nine to five life, I picked up the phone a couple of weeks ago and introduced myself, said, hey, this is Ken. And they said, wait, is this the Ken from Orchard Grove? I was like, yes. And they said, we watch you on TV. We see your, your messages. We watch, we're a part of Orchard Grove and we see you. And I'm just like, I don't see you. I don't know who you are. I have no idea what's happening with this conversation. And, and it was just, just so weird. And then like the next week, we had a big client appreciation event from our corporation. And as we're out at this uh, event and I'm walking through the tables, I see two Orchard Grove people waving in the back. And I'm like, wait, what are you guys doing here? How did you get connected? And they're like, what are you doing here? And then we started talking. And then on Friday morning, first appointment through the door was another member of Orchard Grove walking through the door. And they go, Ken. And I'm like, you're not who I was expecting to see today. It was just so strange. And, and it's just these worlds colliding, which is very much like what's happening with this study on the book of Exodus, because um, our family... Uh, just spent significant time in Egypt. From 2012 to 2021, our family was in Egypt, and we've got some pictures that'll come up. I've mentioned it before, but I don't think I've ever shown any pictures. Our children were children. Our kids were little kids when we went out there. Uh, you know, there's a picture of Kelly and I in one of the tombs uh, with the hieroglyphics there. That's the last time Kelly and I were on the uh, Nile River on a sailboat there. Uh, and there's a picture with us and one of our sons with the pyramids in the backdrop. I mean, we spent significant time there. It's very foundational to who we are, how we believe, and how we practice faith and life. And it's, it's just transformative. And that's the book of Exodus in itself as well. It's very much foundational. The second book within the Hebrew scriptures, the second book in our Christian Bible, the second book of the uh, first or Old Testament, as we refer to it in Christian circles, this member of the book of the law from Moses is also revered not just by Jews and Christians, but also by Muslims. Islam values Moses and views him as a prophet and views his interaction with the Almighty God and his receiving of the commandments and passing those commandments on to humanity as very, very central to faith and life and practice. And so to be able to hear everybody talking about the Nile or to hear Egypt and whispered among uh, different individuals is just resonating with us in a lot of different ways. We're very excited about this discussion. The book of Exodus begins like this amazing drama. You have people in a foreign land whose value has become forgotten. 
and whose numbers are increasing to the point that they're seen as a threat. And in the midst of an act of genocide, a desperate mom puts her baby in a basket and floats it down the river, hoping to preserve its life, only to find it end up in the hands of the very family who's causing the act of genocide. And in that moment, the family takes pity on this child and brings it into their household and their home and raises it within that royal family. And that child grows up, one of history's first real third culture kids, like my children, not really belonging to the nation that they're growing up in, yet not really connected fully to the nation that they left. Moses grows up and at some point realizes that he's got some kind of connection to these people and he tries to intervene and he takes it too far and he becomes a murderer and now he's a fugitive on the run. And these are just the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. Hollywood, eat your heart out. (laughs) Talk about Academy Award winning storylines, right? Super dramatic. And then it gets a little weird in chapter three. You have the voice of God coming from a bush that's on fire, but not yet burning. And then it continues in that weird little theme because the voice of God has a conversation with a very hesitant Moses. And as they have this back and forth, they get to a point of agreement, though Moses isn't fully on board. He has a reunion with his long lost brother Aaron and sister Miriam, and they go to talk to the Israelite leaders about what God has said this plan to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then it gets sci-fi, scratch her head weird. I mean, apocalyptic kind of stuff. Hail falling down, rivers of blood, gnats and locusts and sores all over people and the angel of death. And it's just like, really? What's happening here? It was like, we've been wading into this drama. We've been kind of on cruise control, just doing chapters one, two, three, four, and five a little bit, but I'm going to punch the gas and take us into chapters seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11 here, because this is hard stuff. We're going to look at it collectively because there are, what I see, three major themes that kind of are hard to wrestle with. They're hard to wrap our heads around because it raises serious questions about what God's doing. And so I want us to look at Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, because I think that this serves as a wonderful introduction to what we often call the plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Signs, wonders, mighty acts of judgment. The plagues 
plague us. We struggle with what God's doing, and it causes us even to kind of question the character of God. What's happening here with a river full of blood? What's happening here in these 11 things from the time that Moses throws down his staff and it turns into a snake to the time that the angel of death passes over Egypt? What's going on? How do we explain this? How do we make sense of this? These few verses here, I think, give us some clues that I want to just try to draw your attention to. First of all, these what he says in verse 3, these miraculous signs and wonders. It's really easy to, to try to get caught up and want to find the symbolism here. What, what's God doing within this act? What's God meaning within this? How would they have interpreted or received these kind of things? We search for this not because of curiosity, but because of we're uncomfortable with it. We want concrete answers to what God is doing. We want clear, reason, reasonable explanations for how this is all coming together because we wrestle with how this relates to the character of a loving and just God. When we see all of this hurt, all of this pain, all of this destruction, all of this discomfort, it's really difficult for us to wrestle with it. And so we need certainty so that we can feel comfortable with it and move on to where they cross the Red Sea. And that's where I think Peter N's book, The Sin of Certainty, is, could be a really helpful read for any of you who struggle. The question marks, the mysteries that are there within the scriptures, and, and all the little trite biblical Sunday school answers that we sometimes make up. On the cover it says, Why God does desires our trust more than correct beliefs. See, we, we want certainty to kind of wade out of the discomfort, but that's not faith, trying to come up with those concrete answers. It's kind of really the opposite of faith. You see, the scriptures are not a history book. They're not an instruction manual. They're inspired meditation literature that causes you to have to keep going back at it again and again and wrestle with it and bring your questions and bring your misunderstandings and to search it as it also searches you so that you cannot cherry pick little parts of it, but that you have to understand it within the context of the whole as well as in the context of the whole of your life. It makes us wrestle with it, struggle with it, and allow it to speak into and reframe and reshape who we are. When we get to a part that's difficult, it's easy to kind of point fingers at God or point fingers at those Egyptians or point fingers at Pharaoh rather than allowing it to simmer and us to have to chew on it a little bit and to really meditate into what's going on. And not just dismiss it or gloss over it. Beware of certainty when you're discomforted by the scriptures. The second thing that I think that's within there is this idea of mighty acts of judgment. We sometimes, actually oftentimes, interpret judgment as condemnation, as punishment. 
And I don't think that that's what's really happening here within the scriptures. Judgment as what's happening here within the scripture is an exit sign to correction. You can continue on this path. It's probably not going to be in your best interest to do so. Or you can hear this word of judgment and exit to correction and save yourself some trouble. This week while I was at work, I got an email from someone who had come to the office the week before, and they were thanking me for my time and my attention to them while they were there, but letting me know that they were not going to become a client of our firm. It's kind of a strange email to get on a Monday morning. And as I'm looking at that email and I'm reading it, this young woman goes into an explanation of why. She didn't have to. She didn't have to send me this email. But she tells me that she was uncomfortable by a situation that happened within one of the employees of our or within our organization who said something just kind of off the cuff. And it wasn't what was said. It was what that attitude represented. And for her, that was not what she wanted to align with. And so I took that email and I gave it to our leadership and we had a little bit of a discussion with it. And they said they were going to discuss it. And they were going to talk about how they needed to maybe make some changes, how they needed to hear that word of correction, correction. And they said, I could kind of respond back. And so I sent an email and let the young woman know, look, I thank you for your email. That's given us something to reflect on, something that we can try to improve our client experience and our atmosphere of the way that we do business. And I want to thank you personally because I try to be attentive and supportive to everybody that comes through the doors, and I failed you. I wasn't aware of your discomfort, and you've reminded me who I want to be myself. Exit ramp to correction. Now, before you think too highly about me, <laughs> let me continue the story. Because not five minutes after I wrote that, Kelly, my wife who works with me, came in to try to tell me something and direct me on something, and I was not very attentive. <laughs> I was not very supportive because I was trying to get to all the things that I needed to be able to get to after being sidetracked by this email, and I was just busy and dismissive, very frankly. And she walked away. Five minutes later, she comes back. She says, I watch you be patient and kind and supportive and helpful with everybody else in the office <laughs> and with everybody who walks through the doors. But because I'm your wife, sometimes I don't quite get that level of attention and care. A little judgment. Punishment came later. Just kidding. <laughs> Just a little exit ramp to correction, Ken. <laughs> and these mighty acts of judgment that Pharaoh is bringing, or, or God is bringing onto Pharaoh and to all of the Egyptian land, are these moments to be able to say, is this the path we want to stay on? Or is there a chance to get off here? And sometimes... We don't do that very well, which brings us to the third thing that's within these verses. 
It's the phrase that comes over and over again in Exodus chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. God saying he will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will make him stubborn. Now you can translate it that way as our scriptures often do that God causes this hardness of heart. But it can also be translated this way that God will allow that stubbornness to continue. To understand the source of Pharaoh's stubbornness, we kind of have to go back to understanding some Egyptian history a little bit. See, when we moved to Egypt, we quickly learned the, the saying that Americans measure time and history in decades. The Europeans measure time and history in centuries. The Egyptians measure time and history in millennia. We know and have record of more than 5,000 years of Egyptian history. That's really difficult to put in perspective. 5,000 plus years of civilization and history within this spot of earth. The old kingdom... And I've had to write these dates down so that I, I remember this. <laughs> because if you're an Egyptian tourist guide, you have to know all 5,000 years without any notes. I'm not licensed by the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism. The Old Kingdom was from 2700 to 2200 before the Christian era. 2,700 years before the Christian era. Now put that in perspective. When this ended in 2200, that's as much time before Christ as there has been since Christ to where we are today. In that time frame, Pharaoh is regarded as a god. He is divine. He is infallible. He is all-powerful. He is worshipped. Incidentally, this is when the pyramids of Giza are built, is in this time period, 5,000 years ago. Not by slaves of any other nation, not by Hebrews that we sometimes infer within the scriptures here in Exodus, but by willing Egyptians who saw it as an act of worship. The Middle Kingdom of Egypt 2050 to 1800 years before the Christian era. In this time frame, Pharaoh wasn't viewed as divine. He wasn't viewed as a god, but he was viewed as divinely selected and appointed by the gods to provide rule over this civilization and over earth. And then you get to the late or the new kingdom. And that's 1550 years to 1060 years before Christ. And in this time frame, that's when the Hebrews are there. That's when Moses is there. And Pharaoh is not viewed as a god. He's not viewed as divinely appointed and selected, but he is viewed as divinely responsible for governing the world. Now, if you've had 2,000 years of your family thinking they're all that and a bag of dates and a side of hummus, 
Stubbornness is very much in your DNA. Humility is not a part of your repertoire. For 2,000 years, this family line has thought that they're everything. They don't know how to humble. They know how to cause humility. They don't know how to bend the knee. They expect everything and everyone else to bend the knee. So when Moses comes in and he's shouting, let my people go, he's like, whose people? These are my people. These aren't yours. Who's this God you're talking about? I don't know him. He didn't appoint me or my family tree. Think about it from terms today of a, a professional Hall of Fame athlete in any sport. When they're getting through the twilight of their career, how hard is it for them to walk away? How hard is it to stop doing the thing that they have been capable of doing their entire lives, their whole lives, their whole, not just when they were, their careers, but when they were children, they were the best and were ahead of everybody else around them. And everybody saw it and everybody talked about how they could do anything. And now at 30 or 40 years old, they're having to walk away. It's difficult. It's hard. Multiply that by 2,000 years and you get Pharaoh. He's like, how, how, how am I supposed to just stop this? How am I supposed to just walk away from this? And you don't have to be a professional athlete or you don't have to be Pharaoh to be subject to this kind of stubbornness, to be subject to this kind of self-deception, to struggle with humility. And God doesn't have to bring any kind of supernatural moments or acts into your life to try to get your attention. Life will bring pain. Life will bring hardship. Life will bring disease all on its own. And our own stubbornness, arrogance, pride, bitterness, that will multiply troubles when we don't take correction and exit. What God's doing here is drawing attention to something bigger that's going on and fulfilling what it says in verse 5 that we read a moment ago, that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when my people come out of Egypt. There's a passage of scripture from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 19, and in that chapter it says that Blessed be my people, Egypt. It puts Egypt alongside of Israel as those who have had divine plans and purpose and relationship with the Creator God. It's a passage of scripture that is loved and beloved to this day within Egypt because they recognize that they've had an important part within God's history and plan for the world, that God's arms are open wide to them and embrace them, not just Christian Egyptians, not just Jewish Egyptians, but Muslim Egyptians as well, view that they have a special relationship with the creator God because of this history, because of what God did. And when Pharaoh's bitterness and stubbornness relents and then pulls back and relents and pulls back and concedes the point and doesn't do it and ultimately pays the price of losing his son 
God does not exempt himself from paying that same price. In fact, the Passover that's instituted before that loss of life is celebrated by Jesus himself with his disciples thousands plus years later. And Jesus elevates that meal to usher in a new understanding and a new exodus from death to life that we might be a part of this relationship, this opportunity. And as the band is going to play in a moment, we're going to pray, and you're going to be able to come forward and receive the bread that Jesus elevated at the Passover table. You're going to receive the cup at the same time. And we take this as a memory. We take this as a chance to remind ourselves of what God is doing throughout history, not just within the moment. It's easy to get stuck and see a a snapshot of time. It's easy to get stuck and see this difficult thing and trying to make sense of it. But to see the justice that God brings, the compassion that God brings, the love that God brings to the world throughout history is wrapped up in this moment this exit ramp to life to the full as Jesus himself paid that price once for all. Hebrews, Egyptians, us.